Luke 3, um, verses 1 to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, Tetrarch of Eturia and Traconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He came into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough way is smooth and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat from into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added up this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Well, one of the criticisms of Christianity is that it gives people a free ticket to live however they want with no accountability. You know, central to, the, uh, to Christian faith is the idea that we are saved by faith in Jesus, by trusting in Him, and not by how we live. And while some might see that as good news, others see it as pretty unfair. As a license for people to live however they want and yet get away with it. And that is worth wrestling with because, if true, it does seem pretty problematic, doesn't it? Just getting this free license to live however you want with no consequences. So what does the Bible say about this? Well, tonight we're looking at Luke 3, the passage that we just had read out for us, a passage that helps us get to the heart of this problem by introducing us to a guy named John the Baptist. And to help us wrestle through what this passage is saying, we're going to ask three big questions of this passage. Firstly, who is John the Baptist? What does he tell us about Jesus? 
And what do these tell us about how to respond to Jesus? So first up, who is this John the Baptist guy? Well, uh, have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke chapter 3 from verse 1. Luke writes, In the fifteenth year of, Tiber- of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, there's a lot of names there, aren't there? Notice how Luke is drawing our attention to the timing. It's the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which uh, cashes out to 29 AD in the reckoning we use today. And Luke goes into great detail about who is ruling at the time at different levels of authority. Now, notice again that Luke is a careful historian. Just as we saw back in Luke 1, he's writing an orderly account, and he pays a lot of attention to historical detail. But what is this significant thing that happened in 29 AD? The Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. Now, in the other Gospels, and including later in Luke as well, John is more frequently called John the Baptist. But here Luke calls him John, son of Zechariah. So it's worth asking, why does Luke call him that? I mean, it might be that Luke is just an embarrassed Anglican who felt a bit awkward admitting that John was a Baptist. Quite possible, and being a Baptist myself, I'm quite open to that possibility. But no, Luke's got a far more serious and significant reason for calling him John, son of Zechariah, which other people don't call him. Because by doing so, Luke is reminding us about John's backstory. This was a movie. This is the point where you get a flashback to learn more of the character's origin story. So let's do a little flashback of our own to Luke chapter 1, where an angel told Zechariah about this baby who he was to name John. If you've got a Bible, flip back, Luke chapter 1, from verse 13. The angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice of his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So early on, we're told that John, his birth is going to be significant. Many will rejoice because of his birth. But notice also that he's never to take fermented drink. Might seem a little weird. Uh, but that rule is applied to someone who took a Nazarite vow, which is something you can read about in the Old Testament in chapter 6. And part of the reason I point that out is that in your hub groups this Wednesday night, for those who are part of one, you're going to meet another child in the Old Testament who is set apart as a Nazarite from birth. A child in 1 Samuel who in many ways foreshadows the birth of of John the Baptist. So look out for that on Wednesday night. Continue in Luke chapter 1 from verse, the very next verse, verse 16. The angel says about John, he will bring many of, uh, many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this backstory tells us a bit about what what John's mission is. He will go on before the Lord. He's a a forerunner. He's an advanced messenger who, who comes before God comes to his people. John's job is to do what? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
Because here's the thing, every first century Jew knew that when God comes, He was coming to bring judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation, two sides of the same coin. Testament is filled with promises about the the Lord coming. Uh, One example is in Isaiah 35. It says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come Pressed people. But Isaiah is saying God is coming with what? With vengeance and retribution on the one hand and salvation on the other. They're a package deal, two sides of the same coin. Which means when God comes, you want to be ready. You want to make sure you're on the saving side of the coin and not the being judged one. And so that's why John the Baptist came. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 3 from verse 3. It says about John, he went into all the country around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, now it's quoting Isaiah 40, another part of the same prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Now, did you notice that same language again from from Luke 1? John came to prepare the way for the Lord. So that helps us answer our first big question. Uh, Who is John the Baptist? Well, he's a forerunner. Someone who came to prepare the way for the Lord. And of course, in the Old Testament, it says, prepare the way for the Lord. It's talking about God. But of course, we know now in hindsight that when it says he's preparing the way for the Lord, it means he's preparing the way for Jesus. So that leads to our second big question. What does John tell us about Jesus, this one who he's preparing the way for? We'll have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 3 from verse 15, and let's find out. Luke 3, 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize with water, but one who, is more, one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So picture it, these, these huge crowds are coming out to John the Baptist, and they started to wonder if this guy might be the Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen king, promised hundreds of years earlier. But John is really quick to clear things up. He say, he's saying he's not the Messiah, but the one who's coming after him, he's saying, look out for him. John says, yeah, I'm da- baptizing you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That language might be a little confusing at first. What does it mean that Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, it's helpful to know what the word baptize actually means. Uh, The word baptize literally means to plunge or immerse. Not to sprinkle. I know we're in an Anglican church, but that's literally what the word baptize means. It means to plunge or immerse. 
And so although we normally associate the word baptize with water, when you plunge or immerse someone in H2O, John uses baptism as a metaphor for how Jesus is going to immerse some people in the Holy Spirit, and he's going to immerse some people in fire. It's another way of saying that Jesus is coming to bring both salvation and judgment. For Jesus to baptize or immerse people in the Holy Spirit, well, that's when Jesus pours out his spirit into our hearts to give us new life, which is fulfilled in Pentecost and is what Jesus still does today when people turn and trust in him. But for Jesus to baptize people in fire is a picture of judgment. Fire is something you don't want to be immersed in. As verse 17 says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, in the ancient world, a winnowing fork is what would you use to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good stuff you can eat from the, the, the useless stubble and dirt. And this verse is saying that Jesus will gather some into his barn. It's an image of salvation. Uh, but he will also burn up the chaff in the fire, an image of judgment. The same Jesus brings both judgment and salvation depending on people, how people respond to him. He's destined to call them the falling and rising of many in Israel. Now, that's worth pausing to think about for a moment. Because that language of Jesus bringing judgment, well, that can be quite confronting, can't it? It's unpopular. But this is the real Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't domesticate Jesus and turn him into a soft teddy bear. That's not who he is. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but he's also just. Yes, Jesus is a lamb, but he's also a lion. And he's coming to bring not only salvation, but judgment as well. And given that's the case, the key question then becomes, how should we respond to this Jesus, this Messiah who brings both judgment and salvation? Well, have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 3, verse 3. It says this. It says, John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there are three baptisms in this passage. There's baptism with Holy Spirit, there's baptism with fire, and there's baptism with water. But what does it mean when it calls this baptism with water a baptism of repentance? Well, the word repentance or to repent is a word that is often misunderstood. Sometimes people think to repent means to feel bad or to feel sorry for what you've done. But that's not what repentance means. To repent means to turn. To turn from sin to God. Repentance is a change of mind and heart where we recognize that we're on the wrong path and we turn from our own way and turn instead back to God. A 180 degree turn. And so water baptism doesn't save anyone. It was simply an outward symbol of that inner reality, that inner heart change of turning to God for forgiveness. It's an image of cleansing and a new start as one turns to God. So that's the first part of the response. How do we respond to Jesus? Well, the first part of our response is repent. Turn back to God for the forgiveness of our sins which he'll freely offer us in Christ. 
That's the first part of our response, repent, repent, turn back to God. But there's a second part as well, which flows out of the first. And that is, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this from verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, now notice that phrase, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I say it's a key phrase because understanding this concept is central to unlocking what this whole passage is about, but indeed also what the whole Christian life is about. Because if repentance is an inward reality, a heart change, then to produce fruit in keeping with repentance is to demonstrate outwardly in your deeds what has happened inwardly in your heart. To produce fruit in keeping with repentance is to demonstrate outwardly in your deeds what has happened inwardly in your heart. And what this is saying is that it's not enough to simply say, I've repented and I've trusted in Jesus, now I can live how I want. That's actually not true. That's not something that Christianity teaches at all. Now, this error manifested itself in a particular way back then for John the Baptist's original audience. Uh, Have a look at what he says from the second half of verse 8. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, why would someone be tempted to say, we have Abraham as our father? Well, if you're with us on Wednesday night at Hub Launch, we saw how God made promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Promises to bless Abraham and his offspring, and through them to bless all the nations of the earth. And we saw that the whole rest of the Bible is the unfolding of those promises, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But here's the thing. Some Israelites saw those promises as a reason for complacency. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm an heir of the promise. So I can live however I want and God will still bless me. But John the Baptist is telling them, no, it doesn't work that way. And indeed, all throughout the page of the Old Testament, it's clear that it doesn't work that way. John says to them, God is very much capable of fulfilling his promises while still judging those who rebel against him, even if it requires him to raise up new offspring of Abraham from inanimate rocks. So don't be complacent. He's telling them, God will fulfill his promises, but whether or not you're part of them is up to you. You are replaceable. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And that same message is just as applicable for us today. Of course, our temptation isn't to rely on our lineage from Abraham, but we might be tempted to rely on other things. Christian parents, a Christian school, I was baptized as a baby. But Luke 3 shows us that none of those things matter to God. Every true that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. But at this point, you might raise an objection. Hold on, Ben. 
This is sounding a lot like works righteousness. It sounds a lot like you're saying that a person is saved by their works, by their deeds, by how they live their life, rather than by faith and trusting in Jesus. And that's a very understandable objection. Because the Bible is clear. We are saved by faith in Jesus, not by our own good deeds. But the Bible is also clear that true saving faith in Jesus will always bear fruit in good deeds. In James 2.14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep well and, and, and keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now notice, the question in this passage is not, are we saved by faith or works? It's about what kind of faith saves us, a living faith or a dead faith. So it's not saying our deeds save us. On the contrary, it's saying our faith saves us. But what kind of faith? A dead faith that's in word only but isn't backed up in a changed life? No, this is saying that the kind of faith in Jesus that saves is a living faith, a faith that's alive and vital and and bears fruit. Which means that, as the reformer John Calvin put it, We are justified, it's another word for being saved, where God declares us right and just in His sight. We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. Because true saving faith will never remain alone. It'll always have good company. It'll be accompanied by fruit and a changed life. It's like what we see in Acts 26.20 where Paul says, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Now notice two things in this verse. First of all, notice turn to God is used as a synonym of repentance. It's a helpful reinforcement of what we saw earlier, that repentance means to turn to God. But second, notice that language of prove their repentance by their deeds. Our deeds or our works don't save us. But they do prove outwardly that something has really happened inwardly. We're saved by faith alone, but true saving faith will never remain alone. Jesus is the Messiah who brings judgment and salvation. So, turn to God for the forgiveness of sins and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, maybe you're here tonight and haven't yet turned to God for forgiveness. Maybe you've been ignoring God, wanting to do life your own way, but deep down, you know that it's wrong to ignore the God who made you and the God who loves you. If that's you, let me invite you to repent, to turn to God and find the free gift of forgiveness that comes through trust in Jesus. It can be as simple as praying something like, God, I know I've done wrong. I can't do this on my own. Please forgive me and help me to trust in Jesus 
as Saviour and Lord of my life. It can be as simple as that. And let me assure you that if you come to God like that, your sins will be wiped out and you will be forgiven. So come, turn to him and find life in Jesus. If you want to explore that more tonight, I'd love to chat to you after the service. Please do come say hi. But maybe for others of us tonight, we need to hear the second part of John's message. So for those of us tonight who do claim to follow Jesus, let me ask, are you producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Is your life producing the kind of fruit that flows from a heart that is truly trusting in Jesus? Are you demonstrating outwardly in your deeds what you claim to have happened inwardly in your heart? Of course, we're not talking about perfection here. I'm a messed up sinner and I'm going to be wrestling with my sin until the day I die or Jesus comes back. And if you, like me, feel the weight of your sin and wrestle with it and fight it, don't be discouraged. That's not a bad sign. That's a good sign. Struggle is a sign of life. What's more worrying is if you're not struggling with your sin. What's more worrying is if you've grown complacent with it. What's more worrying is if you look at your life and you know that you're not even trying to produce fruit that honours God. Maybe you're, you're living one life on a Sunday as you come to church and living completely different when you hang out with your non-Christian mates. If you find yourself thinking, I trust in Jesus, so now I've got a free ticket to live how I want. If that's you tonight, then Jesus' message to you is not comfort, but a strong warning. That is a dead faith, and it will not save you on the day when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. The axe is at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is not giving you this warning because he delights in punishing. He's giving you this warning because he doesn't want you to face that. He wants you to experience his mercy. And so please heed his call. Heed the call of Luke 3 and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. God's not interested in outward religiosity. God's not interested in mere church attendance. God cares about your heart. He's not concerned that you would simply have the right beliefs. He's concerned that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And a love like that can't help but flow out in a changed life, an imperfect life, a messy life, a life of daily repenting and turning back to God, but a changed life. And you know, it's fascinating, when, when John preaches this warning, in verse 10, the people respond, what should we do then? The crowd asked. They're asking, what does this look like concretely to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And, and verse 11, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And he says, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. 
Now, what's fascinating is that he doesn't tell them to pray more or go be a monk in solemn solitude. They ask, what does it look like to turn back to God and produce fruit in keeping with that? And he says, love your neighbor. Share with those in need. Which is interesting, right? Because repenting means turning to God. But this is saying that when we turn to God, it bears fruit in love for who? In love for others. And that's because real love for God does bear fruit in love for others. You know, last week we we looked at how Jesus says the two greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor. And there was this great question in question time about what love for God looks like. And I mentioned one of the big ways that we demonstrate love for God is by loving those who've been made in the image of God. And that's the same dynamic we see at work here in Luke 3, isn't it? Real love for God bears fruit in love for others. It's similar to 1 John 4, 19, uh, which says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Isn't that beautiful, but also challenging? God has first loved us in Jesus. And in response, our love for God, if it's genuine, should flow out in concrete love and concern for those around us. One of the criticisms of Christianity is that it gives people a free ticket to live however they want with no accountability. But Luke 3 shows us, doesn't it, that that's not actually the case. Yes, we're saved by faith in Jesus and not by what we do. But true saving faith will always bear fruit, showing itself in love for God and practical love for others. So are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Let's pray for God's help in doing just that. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of love and justice, of salvation and judgment. And Father, we confess that we fall short of your love and your justice in all kinds of ways. And if you gave us what we deserved, we would all deserve your judgment. But we thank you that Jesus came to take the judgment in our place on the cross. Help us to repent and turn to him so that we might trust in him and experience your salvation. Father, please immerse us in your Holy Spirit. Fill us and give us soft hearts that we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, help us to hate our sin. When we're feeling the weight of it, when we're feeling discouraged, please remind us of your immense grace towards us in the Lord Jesus. But Father, for those of us who might be feeling complacent, Please convict us. Fix our eyes on Jesus, our glorious Lord and Saviour. And help us to live a life flowing out of a heart that loves and honours him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.